Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Tim Parks, the author of the new book, The Hero's Way. Tim is an acclaimed author, translator, and essayist. The Hero's Way is an entertaining read, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I had a feeling Tim would have a great deal of wisdom to share and was not disappointed. So, without further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Tim Parks. Before we get into the book, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in and chat about you. How do you describe your your work in the world today, Tim? Uh, so difficult. I I do so many things, too many things. Um, let, let's let's put it like this. I started off when I was in my twenties, uh, determined to be a novelist. Um, I had married and come to Italy. Uh, married an Italian woman and come to Italy. So. There I was writing my novels, but at the same time getting to know a different language, a different culture. Um, so basically, uh, everything started to sort of mount up together. I started translating and teaching to make money. And then so then I'm translating books and I'm writing books. Uh, and then the teaching turns into like articles in the New York Review of Books, articles in the London Review of Books. All of a sudden, everybody wants me to be the world's expert on Italy uh, or Italian literature. And at the same time, I'm I'm going on with, with the novels. So I, a lot of stuff is feeding in. And I suppose the fun of it is that, you know, after a novel that's maybe quite intense, maybe used up a lot of, of, of sort of creative energy, if, if we can be so bold, um, it's nice then to maybe move to do something else, like a translation, um, or, or to write a book that's more documentary about Italy or, or or about just about another culture and so on and so forth. So I would say, you know, now I'm now I'm getting on. I mean, I'm not quite an oldster, but I'm <laughs> uh, I just turned sixty seven. So. There's a kind of pleasure also of uh, of not having that anxiety of getting there, which which makes life so much more so much more pleasant, frankly. Mm. Well, I appreciate you you sharing a, a bit of background, and maybe if we could stay here for a bit. This is in search of wisdom, so part of the show is, is a bit about life lessons and wisdom. But another aspect is this idea of the search or of discerning your particular path. And as you mentioned, you've explored a lot of different paths, done a lot of different things. What helps you to discern that? If you could think maybe early on, why, why write novels? How do you determine that particular path? Well, you know, a lot of, I think the problem with a chat where I show the wisdom that I have, I have uh, accrued during my, during my life. The problem is hindsight, you know. It's sort of easy to invent a narrative of how things happened, but rather more difficult if I really genuinely go back 
And look, so I grew up in a super evangelical family. My father's an evangelical clergyman. My mother was his, very much uh, his colleague, if you want. Uh, they were into the charismatic movement. They were into speaking in tongues and exorcisms and stuff like that. So my life was, my adolescent life was very intense and very conflicted. Uh, I, I, I wanted out of that world. And at the same time, I had a lot of respect for their engagement with that world. So, you know, thinking about it with hindsight, the whole business of writing books is, uh, you know, it's not the same as preaching. Um, you might even say, you might even say that I do the opposite of preaching in that, uh, in that my books bring uncertainty rather than, than certainty or, or mm. they bring, they bring a, a sort of disturbance where before perhaps there was an emphatic belief, but but all the same, I do think, you know, there's a strict relationship between what I do uh, and what my father did. Um, mm. And also the decision to leave the UK, um, apart from the fact that, that there was the, the church world I grew up in, there was also a literary world which I, I didn't get on with particularly well. I felt it was very... Uh, very well established, very complacent. Uh, I felt you needed certain contacts. You needed to be part of a certain world that I wasn't part of. So in in the end, it was a relief to go to Italy and be totally nobody, uh, and just just teach English and have all the all the spare time working on the, working on the novels and so on. Um, but it, it does get really difficult then to find your way. You know, you get a certain amount of success and then people always want you to do the same thing over again, you know. Mm. Um, but maybe doing the same thing is not actually the same thing. Like the, the same thing is doing something new, if you get me. <laughs> uh, because mm. to repeat yourself can get, can get very um, frustrating, even boring, or, or you can get too good at it. You can get so good at it that there's no real life in it anymore, uh, mm. if you follow me. So uh, what, one, of the curious, one of the curious things has been, you know, the pleasure of, say, deciding to write a book about my neighbours, which was a, a, a crazy idea way back that... Um, I was living in some sort of industrial village, if you can imagine such a thing, outside a small town in northern Italy. Um, and, and it was just kind of fun to write a sort of anthropological uh, takeoff of my neighbours. I mean, one of the things that the whole Italian, whole Italian experience did for me was make me very aware how much your individuality depends on uh, the context you live in, the people around you. I mean, I already had that. I already had that as an adolescent, moving between this highly religious Italian uh, uh, religious household, where I would return home from school 
to hear people speaking in tongues or my parents performing an exorcism or something like that. And I had to become a different kind of person from the person I was at school, you know, where we're, uh, I was playing football and, and, uh, and talking about girls and stuff. And so I was very aware that I was two different people in these different situations. And then when you start changing language, uh, you become different ag again. Uh, mm. and, uh, so, you know, a lot of my work, the, the, um, the nonfiction and the fiction is very much about how everybody's positioning themselves in, inside a, a kind of world. And the thing you have to understand is, is not this or that person, but the sort of dynamic of this world that, that allows people or forces people, one or the other, or both to take <laughs> certain positions, you know? So there are certain there are certain people you can't be in the UK, just like there are certain people you can't be uh, in Italy. I mean, you know, you can't be Donald Trump in the UK or, or in Italy. You can't be Margaret Thatcher in Italy. You can't be uh, Giulio Andreotti uh, or, or Berlusconi in the UK. So uh, then you have to understand why. What, what is all the stuff that's going on? And, you know, you read the country's literature very slowly over all the years and you begin you begin to fit into this system and and to understand it a bit better and, and that's a pleasure let me ask if i if i could in in reference to finding our way i'm curious when you think about that maybe present day and you're discerning the the next path or project that you're going to embark on how do you find your way today and kind of make some of those decisions? Well, I think it's got easier today for the simple reason that that money's not the problem it was when one was younger. Mm. I think, and also that one has a clearer understanding of the dangers of ambition. Uh, when I was when I was much younger, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be known as a writer. Um, uh, and I would, uh, I wrote the projects working entirely from myself. Then people come along and they offer you things. And you want to accept them for the money and you want to accept them because you feel this way you'll get to be known, you know. But you, you have to ask yourself constantly, I'm actually going to produce anything good if, if I'm accepting something I wouldn't otherwise have done, mm. just because, uh, like, for example, the most successful book I wrote in terms of sales and money is a book called Italian Neighbors that I wrote in 1990. So I would have been, what, 36 at that point. I published a couple of short novels that have been quite successful. Uh, and a publishing house comes along and they they write me a letter. Those were the days when, when people wrote letters and said, look, uh, there's, there's a guy who's made a lot of money with a book called A Year in Provence. Um, you could you could make the same kind of money writing about a year in northern Italy, you know. So I went along and took a book, took a look at these, <laughs> this, uh, this A Year in Provence, Peter Mayle, a guy called Peter Mayle. And um, 
it's a witty journalist's book about a wealthy man who's in his 50s or 60s has bought a patch of land in Provence. So I wrote back to the guys and said, look, you know, if you've read my novels, you know that, that I'm not that kind of guy. Uh, and I moved here when I was 24, not when I was, you know, and I moved here without any money. And, uh, and I, I, I don't spend my time observing the workers building the swimming pool, you know, and stuff like that. Um, so I don't think this is going to work. And the, the, the guy wrote back to me and said, listen, I'm sure you can do this and we can pay you this amount of money, which was, which he said is, I'm sure, a lot more than your... Uh, and immediately I started writing a book that was completely different from Peter Mayo's books, much more uh, gritty, uh, ironic, um, focused. I mean, because I know the language really well, I know the people really well. Um, and I sent him the first three or four chapters and he said, you're right, you can't do it. Uh, this is not the book that the British public are waiting for. Uh, but at that point, at that point, I got sort of interested by the idea, you know, because I saw that it offered me a different way of, of writing where I didn't have to invent everything, but I could, could have my own particular... I didn't have to write a book like Peter Mayle's book. And in fact, the book was then published and, and was over the years, has, you know, still sells well. And, uh, and so it ended happily. But I suppose the point of this story from our discussion is that serendipity is, is sort of important. Uh, you have to see, you have to not exactly do what you're asked to do. But at the same time, it can be interesting to play around with ideas that people throw at you, you know. Uh, today, today it's really much easier because if I'm asked to do something that I really, really want mm. to do, uh, that's fine. Uh, if I'm not asked to do anything at all, uh, I have, I have stories and, and novels to mull over. Um, and in the middle, there are those happy occasions where somebody suggests something and you, you mm. sort of play around with it in your head um, and think, maybe I can do something with this, which is not probably what they actually want, but, but they might want it, you know, when I, when I start doing it. I do think the most, the hardest time, like when I, I, I taught at the university for mm. 30 years, all in all, probably 28 years. So I was dealing a lot with kids who at the end of their university degree, because I would be teaching them at the last year, they would be at that terrible moment when, you know, you leave this this world where everything's sort of organised so that you can show how good you are theoretically and get the right grades and so on. And then all of a sudden you're in the the real world where where nothing is clear at all. And I do think that was that's the most difficult uh, the most difficult moment. It was a difficult moment for me. And looking back on it, the important thing was not to accept to do stuff I really didn't want to do. 
you know, I started two or three office jobs that uh, that I wisely walked out of, you know. Let me follow up and just ask one thing if I could, uh, Tim. When a project comes your way, do you find it, it helpful to dance with it a bit? Or if, if I hear you correctly, maybe kind of dip your toes in the water to see if it's something that that might be a, a path for you? I think a lot of this depends on your experience and the particular thing being offered. But yes, I've been offered translations in the past that I would look at the original text and say to myself, this is a very strange voice. I'm not sure if we can do this in English. Uh, and I'd start playing around with it, you know, and, and translate a bit here and a bit there mm. and then say, no, it's not going to work. Or, or yes, mm. maybe it is. Um, with novels, um, I'll think about them for ages. And then it'll be a question of, you know, putting down three or four pages and then leaving it there for quite a while. You know, I mean, really quite a while, three months, six months, uh, and then constantly coming back and saying, you know, is this really something I want to get involved in? You know, so. But other projects, you can make terrible mistakes. You know, I've accepted teaching courses I should never have accepted. And uh, and then you just have to stick it out and finish the job and, and get out of it, you know. Uh, but the more experience you have... Uh, the more you're aware of what, of what you can do. I think one project, the one kind of project that's really dangerous is something you can do easily and that takes up a lot of time and that is sort of well enough paid but basically blocks you from doing something that would require a bit more courage to do. So a translation can be like that. I mean, I... <laughs> It's clear looking at the lives of some translators mm. that they used it as a kind of anesthetic when they were in crisis, you know. Uh, there's a guy called Cesare Pavese who, who quite clearly translates when he's in a state of extreme anxiety. Mm. Uh, so he'd go and translate. Even Mussolini, believe it or not, Mussolini used to translate from the German. Mm. Uh, and he would occasionally translate mm. as a sort of a way of soothing his mind because it takes up all your it takes up all your brain cells it's hard work mm. um, but it doesn't require you to it doesn't require you to decide what's going to fill the page let me ask there's something you said the dangers of ambition I'm curious if one of your students that, as you said, were kind of in their final year asked you, you know, what are the, the dangers of ambition? What might be your response? Ambition, of course, is absolutely necessary in many ways. Uh, there are lots of things that you're not going to do if, if you're not ambitious. Um, Ambition is a form of optimism that it is that it is possible to do certain things. The, the dangers of ambition is that it's a, ambition can be a very hard taskmaster. Like if I decide that I have to win the Nobel Prize, for example, Georges Simenon, uh, 
was convinced that he had to win the Nobel Prize. He gave himself a date by which time he would win the Nobel Prize. You know. And worked, worked himself to death, uh, uh, writing both serious novels and detective fiction and so on. Uh, it, seem, it seems to me that if, if the ambition is very much simply towards achieving a position of notoriety and celebrity, um, then it's going to take a lot of the pleasure out of what you do. Uh, and it exposes you to the risk of that, that any kind of unsuccess will be experienced mm. as, a, as a disaster, you know. So, for example, Simonon experienced his not winning the Nobel Prize as a disaster, and yet he's probably one of the most successful novelists mm. of, the, of the 20th century. In terms of sales, I think he may well be the most successful novelist of the 20th century. So... Uh, you, you can you can make your life very unhappy um, if your ambitions mm. are not immediately uh, achieved. You know. Uh, on the other hand, if they are immediately achieved, you can get a huge, uh, overblown opinion of yourself. You know, which is, I think, mm. what happens to some young writers who are extremely successful. You know, it's not it's not their fault for sure, but. Uh, I think it might be luckier, as it were, as it were, to arrive slowly. You can get terribly wired up with ambition. You can start feeling that everybody else is against you, or uh, you can start not enjoying the work that other people are doing because it's important for you to be more successful than they are. Okay, so you can't concede to them. Uh, you begin to close your eyes to what other people are doing rather than to be open to it, you know. So, um, perhaps this is ambition uh, of a certain kind, I don't know. But it, it does seem to me to, to be important mm. to, sort, to sort of be aware of, of, of um, what a slave driver ambition can be. Seems to be such an important point, and I, I really appreciate you expounding on it. How about The the Hero's Way? What led you to to write this book? Okay, let's, tr let's try and talk about this very odd book. Uh, <laughs> this was one of those projects, this was one of those projects that, that sort of appeared in my mind without me knowing when or how, and I found it very difficult to understand why I really felt it was a great idea or why I felt I really, really wanted to do it. And very difficult for me also to understand the shape of the book that, that would come out of it. But basically, I'd lived in Italy since I was 25. Uh, I'm now 67. I wrote this book a couple of years ago. Um, I had studied, funnily enough, at school, Ital the Italian Risorgimento, the process by which Italy got its independence, okay? And in that process, there's one major hero, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was this kind of revolutionary guerrilla fighter um, who had um, been extremely successful as a guerrilla fighter in South America in... in um, Uruguay and in Brazil after being expelled from Italy uh, when he was a very young man. 
Italy, we remember at that time, was divided into a number of small states, some of them some of them run by Austria, some of them with Austrian puppet. Uh, remember, the Austrian Empire was very big at that time. Uh, and then there was the Papal States, a large part of central Italy run by the Pope. And then there was a, a southern kingdom run by, by Bourbon kings. Uh, any, it, it's quite a lot of history. And Garibaldi is a figure who becomes involved in all the various revolutions from 1848 onwards in Italy, um, and very much a hero who managed to gather around himself uh, and to reconcile, on the one hand, the monarchists who wanted Italy to be a monarchy, and on the other side, the republicans uh, who wanted Italy to become, you know, a republic. And, and, and one of the problems in Italy was getting all the people who wanted Italy to be a single state to agree on what kind of state they wanted it to be. Okay. So I had always been totally fascinated by this guy um, because he's a guy of huge charisma, a guy who worked completely outside uh, the box. Uh, he was he was nobody's man. Um he was a great military figure, but also a very wily mover amongst different groups of people. In any event, in 1849, there was a revolution in Rome, which didn't last for very long. They declared a Roman Republic. It was actually the first time that in Europe they had an election where every man could vote, not every woman, obviously. But uh, every man could vote. Uh, immediately, the French, who were, the, were themselves a republic, came to the support of the Pope to destroy the republic, and they besieged Rome. And Garibaldi uh, was present and led the defense of Rome for about three months, very valiantly. Let's not go into all the details there. But they were eventually overwhelmed by the French uh, forces. Uh, and so Garibaldi had to make this decision, am I going to surrender here in Rome uh, or am I going to try and take the war out into the countryside? Okay. And he had about 24 hours to make that decision. And he decides that he will never surrender on Italian territory to a foreign power. And so he tries to get his men out of Rome and take them into the country and see what can be done. And if nothing can be done, try and take them to Venice, where there was still a republic holding out. Now, Venice is about four, 450 miles from Rome, okay, through pretty arduous country. So anyway, he takes these guys out of, of Rome just getting them out was was difficult. There were 4,000 infantrymen and about 800 cavalrymen. Uh, and he has to zigzag all over the place because there's the French army uh, after him. And then as he moves north, there are four Austrian armies after him because most, most of northern and central Italy was run by Austria. And in the end, he ends up walking more than 400 miles uh, with small battles and endless zigzags and 
and endless episodes um, encounters with um, monks, uh, local politicians, mayors, uh, trying to get some kind of revolution going uh, and trying to stay on the move and not be. Now, I had read about this. It's just a, it's just a kind of little parenthesis, if you like, in Italian history. But it was also a sort of epic walk. Um, the guys would, the guys left Rome on the 3rd of July, 1849. So you can imagine the temperatures. Italy's a, a hot country in summer. Um, and, and they walked for more than a month. Now, he, ha he also had his wife be beside him. He had a Brazilian wife. She was pregnant with their fifth child. Mm. Uh, she was a great horse rider. She had in the past taken part in battles with him. And she was walking, she was riding together with the men. Uh, they were all, I mean, it was a, I, I'm sure that Garibaldi felt from about day three that he'd made a big mistake. But he was in it, you know, he, he, and he was responsible for these men. These men were going to be shot if they were captured. They were going to be summarily executed, and many of them were. Um, and and he, he had on his back, as he were, the whole question of, whether, of the dignity of the Italian military, whether Italians were worthy of freedom and of, and of self-determination. Um, so it just occurred to me one day, uh, why don't we do the same walk? You know, find find any material there's, there is, any diaries that anybody wrote, uh, all the local archives, and just walk the same walk in the same time, on the, in the same days, more or less, uh, and have a great summer, you know? And at the same time, there's this whole, this whole thing that fascinates me about the past. You know, we, we so easily create narratives about the past, um, narratives about our own life, um, a sense of what the past is, uh, and, and we think we know about it, and we read history books, and we think we know about it. And yet you have a feeling of like how extraordinarily different the past must have been. I mean, if, if you just think now, without getting polemical, that we have just spent two years hiding hiding behind our face masks and vaccinating ourselves and washing our hands endlessly and, and so on and so forth. And then you think about a bunch of 4,000 guys who are taking their lives in their hands who are going to be shot if they're captured um, and they're doing this because, because they believe, you know, that Italy should be a country. And yet today in Europe... It seems that nobody wants a countries to exist anymore. You know, they want they want the EU to look after everything, and uh, um, and the idea of the idea of the nation state has almost become a sort of negative idea. And yet, when you go back, you realise that that for the people of that time, the idea of freedom was only possible if they could self determine, and they could only self determine inside inside a reality that was big enough to live. In Europe at the time. So uh, this idea of just going back and at least walking the walk they walked uh, was, was a thought, you know. 
What's it like walking that far, <laughs> you know, every day without a break? Um, and so we did it. It was very hot. Sometimes the, it, it got up to, uh, you know, even 40 degrees centigrade. That's, that's I don't know, over 100 Fahrenheit. Um, also, how different the world is from 100 and 160, 70 years ago, you know, uh, just finding paths that are not major roads, mm. like just walking out of Rome is a nightmare. Just finding a way to walk out. Can you imagine walking out of New York, uh, mm. like really trying to get out, walking up through, I don't know, crossing the, the Washington Bridge and taking the Jersey Shore and actually just walking until you reach to open country. Uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating how much the world has changed. Um, they were walking mainly at night to avoid being observed and attacked. Uh, well, you'd have to be crazy to walk at night out of Rome because uh, a lot of the time there are no pavements, there are no sidewalks. Uh, so this was the project, you know, and I really didn't even know how that would pan out in a book. Um, sort of what it would what it would feel like trying to write about modern Italy and trying to think about how they thought about Italy, trying to, to get in the sense of tension and the anecdotes, because it it gets pretty dramatic. Um, things just, things go from bad to worse. And basically, at the end, these guys find themselves crossing the Apennines, um, increasingly surrounded by Austrian armies and simply desperate to avoid being massacred um so i won't i won't spoil the story but it but it is an extraordinarily dramatic story also the personal story of of anita garibaldi the wife who alas does not end well in this story mm. um so it was a question you i love it when you start a book and you think Oh my God, I have no idea how we're going to do this. Um, because it means your days are going to be interesting. You know, it's not painting by numbers. You know, mm. you're not just filling in the gaps. Um, so, so that was, that was fun. And, um, and I realized that the book was, I realized the book was more interesting than I thought it was. The whole question of what freedom really is. Mm. The question of what it means for a group of people to want freedom together, um, which, of course, binds them together and makes them unfree. Mm. Uh, like these people were fighting for freedom, but to do so, they had to be committed to each other. Um, you know, there were people who betrayed. There were people who deserted um, and so on and so forth. So a, a lot of the book is about fear and about freedom. Mm. And funnily enough, I think the the meaning of this book changed radically in the last months of writing it because I was writing about their flight across the Apennines to San Marino, um, you know, sometimes walking for 24 hours without a break. In fact, on the last march they did, they marched for 36 hours without without any significant break. Wow. Um, in a desperate state, lots of the men with no shoes. Um, 
you know, for food, they would they would carry a piece of bread tied around their neck or or whatever. Um, they were tying tying rags with animal fat between their toes for the blisters. Mm. So, so in the last months when I was at the same time, the countryside is unbelievable. I mean, the countryside is just beautiful beyond words, and uh, many of the villages you visit are simply magnificent and. Uh, and and, and wonderful places to be. So there's a sort of travel book there as well, you know. And I was writing about this, and um, and we, they put us in lockdown, you know. They put us in lockdown. Now I should say that that I took this walk uh, with uh, my now second wife. Uh, we had been together for a few years at the time, and. Uh, this was the, like the first really adventurous thing we'd done together, you know. So it was a, a kind of make or break for a relationship to put yourself through that heat and those hills because there's an awful lot of climbing in this book. Um, uh, you know, the question of, of whether both of you are really up for it, um, you're going to look after each other. Uh, you know, sometimes you sometimes you get close to heat stroke and... You really need somebody around to keep an eye on you. Um, and, and then writing about all this and thinking about all this, uh, you get put in lockdown and your freedom is taken away. I mean, the, the first lockdown in Italy was, was pretty radical. You know, we were not supposed to go out at all except to the supermarket uh, for a couple of months. And, you know, suddenly you, you think, God, we were really free when we did that walk, mm. you know. We got up every day and planned our route and, you know, we had our, we had our navigation, our, our hiking app, our trekking gear. Uh, we stayed where we wanted. Uh, we didn't have to observe any social distance. Mainly, the, mainly there was nobody around on a lot of the paths we took. Um, and and it was a wonderful experience, you know. Uh, and you realize that, that that's been taken away. That nobody can do that now. In, that, in this moment, nobody can enjoy that freedom. Mm. Uh, so, again, I think his, history, like any, any object, is your experience of that object. Or at least for you. You know, the object may exist in some world where, where nobody else exists. But... Mm. For those of us who see an object, it's in relation to us. You know, a chair, I sit in it, the light. I, and the past is like that too. It's in relation to you. And the past changes with your present. So, you know, the whole feeling of what, what Italy was as it was being made changed for me a lot on this trip. Why embark on this trek yourself? Why was that? important to you to to literally follow in the in the footsteps and how do you think maybe that changed your perspective of garibaldi and in in this book we read about we read about the past uh, and inevitably you read about a lot of things in a very short time you read about three years history in a couple of hours or something like that um you have to you have to ask yourself what kind of knowing is that? Mm. Especially, like for example, if I read about 
stuff that happened two or three years ago. I'm pretty aware what it means for these people to have got on airplanes or driven their cars or or done this and that. Okay, uh, but what did what did it really mean that these guys walked, you know, four hundred miles in this way, often avoiding any kind of road or or anything? Um, I suppose it was just it was almost a romantic idea, the idea that you could genuinely get close at least to the physical hardship and then weigh up for yourself what their commitment was mm. um, uh, what their sense of disorientation was you know they didn't know where they were going most of the men Garibaldi never told his men what he, where they were going uh, that was important because if if people got captured they would they would they wouldn't be able to say where they were going mm. um, so it was just a fascinating business of getting close to a large group of people and realizing how all, all of their relationships are uh, relationships. They are actually in relation to each other in that world. And you begin to understand it a bit better. And just that process of understanding something like that a bit better makes you rather more aware of how little you understand <laughs> most of the stuff, you know, uh, that we read about, you know. So uh, it was just a project. It was, it was an idea that came to me and suddenly seemed important to me. Um, and also, I should say that I just love walking. <laughs> you know, I, I love this feeling of, you know, there was a feeling of continuity. We we didn't get a single wheeled vehicle or any kind of transport uh, for a month or more, um, and we covered 400, 400 and something miles, 450, I think it was. So you get, it's, it's strange, almost a sense of purity, mm. of sort of continuity with the landscape. This is this is me physically moving in this landscape all this way. And this is what it was like for people before there were cars and trains and stuff. Mm. Uh, because uh, 1849 in Italy, there were one or two trains on the edges, but, mm. but certainly none in the space that we covered. Most of the men who did that walk... Would the only transport they would have ever been on would have been a horse, a horse, or horse and carriage at, at best, maybe a ship. Um, so that was that was the project. And again, again, below all the things that I do, there's this sense that people change in relation to other people around them and and the world around them, and that you know your own possibilities, who you are will largely depend on the situations you put yourself in. If you never put yourself in a new situation, you're never going to discover much about yourself. I was, I was kind of amazed um, how strong we got on this trip. Like, we got really strong. Uh, the, last, the last days we were walking something like, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 miles in... in really hot weather, lots of hills and stuff, and we were fine. Um, but at the beginning, at the beginning, it was not like that. It was hard work. Yeah. Let me let me ask you, Tim, um, this idea of, of walking 
in in maybe the wisdom of walking, I guess, there's a lot of <clears throat> um, quotes from the past. I think of I think Nietzsche is one. All great thoughts are conceived while walking. That is that true for you? Um, of of just this idea of helping to to contemplate this this story through throughout it, or just walking in general. I think you know what. What walking does is it, 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 it sort of the body is occupied. You've got an alibi for, you know, your body's doing something. Uh, your mind is free to, to go back and forth between looking at what's, what's around you um, uh, and, and then thinking, you know, about other things. Uh, so in, in the sense that, you know, somebody like Nietzsche says, you know, you don't think the thought, the thought is thinking you. Uh, you offer a kind of space. You're not sleepy. Um, it's not one of those moments when you're going to drift off. But but your mind is open enough for stuff to pop in there. Mm. And there's enough stimulus going on for things things to happen. But one of the things that I hadn't expected, uh, particularly we set off without trekking poles and we we bought them pretty soon because um well i was curious but then we realized they were re they're really useful you know if you're carrying a backpack uh a trekking pole is good and then you walk together with someone with trekking poles and you realize almost immediately that without planning it the sound begins to fit in together. You know, you're walking in step. Mm. And so you get an intimacy of walking in step. And you realize that this is an intimacy that soldiers must have when they march together. Mm. You know, their feet are hitting the ground at the same time. They don't need to turn around and look. They know someone else is having the same experience they're having, you know. Mm. Um, I found it. I found it really quite a moving experience, this business of, of the way our poles would start clicking together. Mm. Uh, and then occasionally we'd start singing, you know. Um, my now wife, Eleonora, uh, is, a, is, a, is, is, is a musician and loves uh, music and singing. And, and we would uh, find that we were kind of humming tunes that would fit in with the rhythm of the walking Quite, quite automatically, it was really very, very much a pleasure. But above all, above all with walking, you just remind that, that you know, we don't live in a virtual world. Mm. We, we live in a, in a real world, you know. And even the virtual world, of course, you know, my computer is real uh, and, it, uh, and it really tires my eyes when I look at it all day. So, you know, it, it's real enough even... But but the walking has has a pleasure of you know an earthiness. You're smelling stuff all the time, you know. You're needing to go for a pee or, or take a dump in in uh, in the woods. You know you're you're really you're really out there. You're thirsty. You're hungry. And and then when you're exhausted and you've climbed the hill to the town because notoriously when you arrive at an Italian town, it's at the top of a hill. And you get up there and you're sweating and everything and, you know, 
a cold drink is just completely different from what it would be, you know, if you just stepped out of your air-conditioned car. So, you know, it was a huge pleasure um, to explore uh, and a challenge, a challenge to find interesting ways to write about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I, I love it. Our time has flown by. I've got a couple questions I, I wanted to get to. And this podcast is is part of the Perennial Leader Project, which is really an interest in some of these ancient lessons, timeless leadership principles. And I'm fascinated with this story and thinking about Garibaldi and his men, this loyalty that this group had for for one another. I want to read something that you write in the book from something he said. Um, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor food. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, and all the perils of war. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not just with his lips follow me. I'm curious what do you think built this this loyalty that he had with his men and this um what seems to be you know really a timeless leadership from Garibaldi There are endless reflections on how Garibaldi how Garibaldi's charisma worked We're talking probably about the most popular figure in the whole of the 19th century in like the first international political hero when he visited London in 1862 more than a million people turned out on the streets to see him uh, uh, hysteria I think I think the the key thing about Garibaldi is his total authenticity he came from a fairly poor or or at least sort of his father was a ship's captain, a merchant ship's captain. So that's not poor, but it certainly wasn't sort of highly educated. Garibaldi himself left school when he was like 12. Um, and then he would be, uh, he was working as a, a sailor and so on for a, for a long period. So I think the first thing was that it was clear to everybody that he genuinely really did believe in what he was doing. Mm. Uh, and that he was never going to let you down. The other thing was that he appeared to be totally free. He dressed the way he wanted to dress. He never dressed in conventional terms. Like in Italy, he would always be wearing his South American poncho. He would put the strangest hats on, um, the oddest shirts. Uh, when he first went to the Italian parliament, he put a white sombrero on. Um, they didn't want to let him into the parliament because he wasn't following the dress code. He married uh, this young woman, Anita, who he met in Brazil. Uh, she was like 18. He was 40 or something like that. She was already married. Uh, her husband was away at war. Neither of them cared. Um, and uh, we don't know what happened to the husband. He appears to have been killed in the war. But he didn't really care what people thought about that. Um, so that the sense that you were dealing with somebody who was free, but by no means crazy. The other thing was just his enormous competence. The guy 
the guys stayed cool when everybody else was losing their head. You know, when the battle was at its craziest, um, he when they were losing, when things were going wrong, he was absolutely um, decisive and calm. Um, and I, I think, so he offered that sense of, of security that somebody else was there to make the big calls and he was going to do it pretty well. Uh, I mean, and, and mainly he did. I was just reading the other day at a different moment in, in Garibaldi's life when they were <clears throat> at the most successful moment in 1860 when uh, Garibaldi took a thousand men to Sicily uh, and they uh, eventually, with the, obviously the help of the locals and of uh, local volunteers, destroyed an army of 20,000 um, Bourbon soldiers. But there's, there's a description of, of, of Garibaldi in the battle for Palermo, where uh, this, man, this man Crispi, who later became Prime Minister of Italy, said, it was a joy to see Garibaldi mm. at moments like this. Uh, his, face was, his face was lit up with, um, with calm excitement. And um, you wouldn't have thought that there were people falling dead around him. You would have thought that he was at a, a big party or a dance. So there's this, there's this strange feeling of a guy who wasn't, certainly wasn't in love with death or killing, but who just had this amazing ability to actually handle uh, situations of, uh, that, that would lead most of us terrified. <laughs> Uh, he, he wasn't scared of, of being killed. Uh, and that was very, very important for his men. He was right there. At the battle in Palermo, at the key moment, they had to go across a crossroads, which was being raked with gunfire from three different directions, but from quite a distance. So it wasn't impossible to cross, but it was very, very frightening. And Garibaldi simply stood his horse in the middle of the crossroad and stood there while, while everybody got by. You know, I mean, the chances of being killed were probably, you know, certainly much more than your chance of, 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 um, of dying of COVID, mm. or something like that. It's... I, I find it fascinating. And there's a danger, obviously, that one will fall in love with, with militarism. But... Uh, Funnily enough, Garibaldi, Garibaldi's line was, also, was always, when we've won this battle, we go home. We don't want any standing armies. We don't want any arms races. We don't want any wars with any other countries. We just want to sort ourselves out and go home, mm. uh, which, is, which is what he always did. After the battle, he went home and looked after a small farm on a small island. What I thought was such a beautiful idea when you, you think about the, the death and destruction that, that must have been all around, but he, he wrote about many of these men that, that died, and I thought an interesting point, even some that he didn't necessarily know their name, he wrote about, if I remember correctly in the book, you know, who they were. He 
made it a point to remember the these people that that gave their lives. He wrote four or five books uh, when he when he was older, um, and in particular the, the the book of memories that that he writes his autobiography, which is well worth a read. In the modern editions of the book, they eliminate these lists of names, you know. But when you when you read the integral version, if you can get hold of it, you realize that for him, it really was an important duty uh, to everybody he'd known. And it didn't matter whether he remembered the name. Mm. He remembered that there was somebody be- beside him at this particular moment who, who had behaved in a brave way. Um, and he always wants to recall that. And and you get a sense, you know, I hope this comes over towards the end of this book too, of this enormous vitality of these men. The, the, so many of the men at the end of this story, um, they were either forced to leave Italy, they went to America, Garibaldi himself went to America, they went to South America, they got involved in all kinds of other struggles. Many of them were involved in the struggle against slavery. Um, there's just this extraordinary appetite for life uh, and this being unafraid of the consequences, you know, uh, which I, I guess I find, I, I just find so admirable uh, mm. and, and so different from our uh, insurance obsession today, as it were. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Tim. That is a great way to wrap it up right there. Uh, The Hero's Way is a fascinating and and fun read. Where can people go to to learn more about you and and the book? Me and the book? Well, you you can always go to timparks.com if you want to browse through all the, you know, get a sense of what I've done and what I do. Um, Yeah, there's a Facebook page as well. It's not difficult to find these things. Actually, for people reading the book, you might have fun using the hashtag at uh, the hero's way. Um, obviously, with with no no uh, no possessive comma at the hero's way, because on that I put three photos for every one of the thirty days of the trip, hmm. so you can get some sense of the landscape we walked through and. Um, and also a little quotation from each day. So it's kind of just a fun extra. In fact, when you read this book, you should you should definitely think about reading it with a map beside you. Mm. Um, there, there's no way in a, there's no way in a book like this that you can put enough maps in. You know, it, it costs a fortune to get people to draw maps and to get them printed in a book, but it's really useful. Um, you know, everybody can just open their phone, put in the name of this place, and you can see at once. You know, uh, that 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 that's a a big positive with um, with the phone and with media is this availability of seeing places and maps and so on. Well, great. We'll link that in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, Tim Parks, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joshua. It's been fun talking. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. 
These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.